Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 3. We are uh, finishing the seven letters today. It seems like that the seven weeks has gone by uh, quicker than I expected it to. I don't know about for you guys. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a good study uh, to see what Jesus has to say uh, to churches that in many respects are, are maybe not all that different um, than the church today. Maybe uh, in some respects are not a lot different than uh, even our church. And so hopefully as we have uh, taken the time to, to go through these letters, uh, it's been able to bring some clarity to you guys. I think we've tried to bring some historical context uh, just for the purpose of bringing clarity to what, uh, what Jesus is actually saying uh, to the churches because sometimes we can misinterpret and even in today's letter, um, you know, it's often misinterpreted about what Christ uh, is saying to the church. And so uh, hopefully it's been challenging for us. Hopefully it's been convicting for us. Um, both on an individual level, but also um, on a corporate level uh, as um, a local church uh, here in Lapine. So today we're going to be uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, uh, the church at Laodicea. Um, to give you a little bit of background on Laodicea that's going to be helpful for us uh, in understanding this letter, it's important to know that Laodicea was a major cultural center, and there were uh, some major trade routes that converged in Laodicea. And so uh, a lot of traffic came through Laodicea because of these trade routes. Uh, it was a center for banking and finance. It was a wealthy city. So wealthy, in fact, that around AD 60, there was an earthquake that destroyed Laodicea. Uh, and the Roman government had offered funds to Laodicea, emergency funds, kind of like maybe the FEMA of our day, um, offered funds to them to help rebuild the city. And Laodicea was so wealthy and so proud of their wealth that they declined the emergency assistance from the Roman government. Um, so not only were they wealthy, but they were just proud uh, of being wealthy. Uh, Laodicea was also known uh, for the textile industry. They produced uh, soft black wool that was used to make uh, luxurious garments uh, and carpets. Uh, not like today where, you know, you can produce a material that's, that's any color uh, because of the technology that we have. They didn't have that technology back then. And so um, there was this particular black wool that came specifically from Laodicea. The city was also known for its school of medicine, uh, and they specialized in diseases of the eye, and so they had this ointment that people would travel from all around to come to Laodicea to get this ointment to put on their eye because it was so effective, uh, and it was produced out of this medical school uh, in Laodicea. Uh, it's also important to note a few miles away, uh, there were a couple of cities, Colossae and Hierapolis. Uh, Colossae, we, we might uh, recognize that name, Paul's letter to the Colossian church. Uh, Colossae was known for having uh, cold, refreshing spring water. Hierapolis, also a few miles away, was uh, known for having a therapeutic hot spring. But Laodicea didn't have any water source of its own, and so they had to build these aqueducts. And they would transport the water from the refreshing spring near Colossae or the therapeutic hot spring near Hierapolis uh, via aqueduct into the city. And you can imagine uh, water having to travel even a few miles via aqueduct by the time it made its way uh, to Laodicea. The cold water was no longer cold and no longer refreshing. The hot water was no longer hot, no longer therapeutic. It was tepid. 
tepid water. Uh, and not only that, but they were so laden with minerals that the water had this kind of weird taste to it. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever been to Ashland, Oregon, but if you go to Ashland, Oregon, and you go down to Lithia Park, there's a drinking fountain in Lithia Park. And I don't know if it has sulfur in the water or what it is, um, but it's like if you take somebody that's never been there, you tell them, oh, go get a drink out of the drinking fountain, and they take this drink of this disgusting water, and they just spit it out of their mouth, and it's kind of a funny prank to play on people. This is kind of the water of Laodicea, that it was so full of minerals that it had this weird taste, and visitors would come uh, unaware, and they would drink the water, often throwing up after taking a drink of this um, disgusting water. With respect to just the pride and the self-sufficiency of Laodicea, a Roman historian named Tacitus said of Laodicea that uh, Laodicea rose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. So somebody attached to the Roman government recognized they they don't need our help. One commentator said that the city and the church were very much alike. They saw themselves as self-sufficient. They did not need the help of anyone, including God. They were just fine all by themselves. The church, for sure, was badly deceived. And so all of this comes into play as we jump into the letter and we see what it is that Jesus has to say uh, to the church at Laodicea. So so keep all that historical context kind of in the back of your mind uh, as we make our way through. Jesus starts this letter in verse 14, and he says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful, and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, as we see a pattern in all of these letters, Jesus always gives us kind of introduction of, of here, here's the one that's speaking, and here's my authority to say what I'm about to say. And so as we've kind of maintained throughout this series that the angel of the churches um, are, are probably most likely actual people, that word can be translated as messenger. So, so it's probably the actual messenger that delivered the letter, but, but there is some theological debate on that. And so you're welcome to go study that out on your own. And if you come to a different landing um, or land in a different place, you can still come to church here next week. It's okay. Then <laughs> um, he says the words of the Amen. Amen is a Hebrew word, and it means so be it. It's a word that we say a lot in church, right? We typically, after we pray, we, we say amen, uh, meaning so be it. Um, often in the Bible, uh, you might not know this, the word amen is uh, often translated as most assuredly, depending on what translation you read. It could be translated verily. Uh, it could be translated truly. So again, depending on what translation you read, all of those words could be the original word uh, for amen. It appears in Revelation nine times and many, many times throughout the New Testament, but right here is the only place where the word amen is used as a title. Nowhere else in Scripture is the word amen used as a title, and Jesus refers to himself as the amen, or these are the words of the amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all of the promises in God find their yes, capital Y, their yes in Him. That is why through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. The, the idea here is that, that everything in God finds its fulfillment in the person and the work of Christ.
because of the proximity to Colossians, they would be no strangers probably to the church at Colossae, where we'll read this passage in a moment, but um, Colossians gives this really incredible description uh, of who Jesus is, that, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. So all of the promises of God, everything that God is, everything that God says, everything that God has done finds its fulfillment in the person and the work of Christ. And that's why he can say at the onset of this letter to the church at Laodicea, these, these are the words of the amen. These are the ones who will make it be. These are the ones who, uh, the words of the one who has the final say over anything and everything. He calls himself the faithful and true witness, and this isn't the first time that he's called himself the faithful and true witness. At the onset of the revelation in chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, uh, it says that John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who before his throne from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness." the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves and has freed us from our sins by his blood. John has, has worked hard in this letter um, to, to establish the case for who Christ is and that he's the ruler of all. And one of those titles of his is that he's the faithful and true witness, that his witness is to the Father and who the Father is. He's also referring to himself as the beginning of God's creation and beginning, uh, not referring to that he was the very first thing created. It's important that we understand that Jesus is not a created being. So when he refers to himself as the beginning of creation, one interpretation is to say that he's the first created thing, and that's, that's, not, that's not a biblical view of who Christ is. The idea here is more like uh, that of an origin, or in other words, everything begins with Jesus. John tells us in his gospel in chapter 1 that in the beginning was what? The Word. Capital W Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And he goes on to say that there wasn't anything that was created anywhere that wasn't created through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 15-20 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And all of this is to say is that, that Jesus is preeminent over all of creation. Again, not that he was the first thing created, but he is over all of creation. And, and the Bible tells us that he actually is the creator. And so... When John writes to the angel of the church in Laodicea that these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, we're being reminded that Jesus who is sovereign over all, Jesus who holds the entirety of the cosmos together, Jesus who directs everything, Jesus for whom everything exists, is the one who's speaking to us. That's a pretty big introduction, isn't it? And so it kind of begs that we ought to pay attention, given that introduction, that we ought to pay attention to what comes next. Now, most of these seven churches, as, as you've probably realized over the last 
seven weeks, um, six weeks in today, that um, Jesus has some good things to say about some of the churches and some bad things to say about some of the churches, you know, some areas of improvement. Uh, this church at Laodicea, there's no good things. There's nothing positive that he says about this church. It's 100% an indictment of the church. In verse 15, he says, I know your works. Now, again, given who's speaking, given the one who's speaking is the one who has authority over all, who has control over all, the one who knows everything, the one who's preeminent over all creation, when that person says, I know your works, he knows. He knows your works. I was thinking the other day, remembering back to um, a business I used to work in, and and, uh, one of my jobs was to hire people to work in this call center. And there was this gal that we uh, had brought in and for a couple of days, we went through the interview process, you know, two or three interviews into the process and decided we wanted to hire her. And um, we would uh, have a practice of doing background checks on people, um, criminal background checks. And so we went in uh, to offer her the job and we sat down, it was me and another guy, and we sat down at the table and we had this piece of paper that we put face down on the table so she didn't know what it was. And we just said, we got the results of your background check. Is there anything that you'd like to tell us before we proceed? And she said, no, I don't think so. And we kind of pushed, like, are you sure? Like, we have the background check right here. Is there anything that you would like to tell us? And the background check was clean, but we were just trying to, we were having some fun. And this girl broke down and cried. And she talked about a time when she drove off from the gas pump with the nozzle, you know, hanging out and drove down the road. And she didn't turn around, and and she thought that came up on her background check, and she just freaked out. Um, It was funny at first, but then it, it didn't take long before it didn't get to be funny anymore. When Jesus is doing this to the church at Laodicea, when he says, I know your works, he's not messing around. He, he knows. He knows the works of this church. He goes on to say that you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say that I am rich and I have um, prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is, this is a scathing indictment of the church at Laodicea. And given the historical context that we covered, we can, we can see how Jesus is speaking to them in their own context. He says that I know your works because he knows all. He sees all. He is everywhere all of the time. That there's nothing that we can do to hide from Christ. And his indictment is that they are neither hot nor cold, but they are lukewarm. In other words, he's saying, you know that water, that refreshing water that comes from here and the therapeutic water that comes from over here? And you know how by the time it gets down to where you're at, it's not really good for much of anything? It's like, that's you. That's you, church at Laodicea. And as a result, he's saying that you should be hot or cold. And and how we often interpret this verse is to say, either be on fire for God or turn your back on him and walk away, but don't be indifferent. That's not what's being said here. That's how that verse often gets interpreted. That's how it often gets preached. But given the historical context, we can see that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that the church at Laodicea is much like the water that flows into the town from these aqueducts that by the time it gets there, it's not really good for much of anything. How many of you like your, your hot coffee in the morning, right? It's, it's the joy of the morning, right? Sipping your hot coffee. What, what happens when, you're, when your coffee becomes tepid, when it becomes lukewarm? You, throw it in the, you dump it out or you throw it in the microwave and heat it up again, don't you? 
right? Um, what happens for you, you iced tea drinkers when the ice melts in your tea and it's been sitting for a while and the tea gets kind of lukewarm? You dump it out or you put some more ice in it, right? So it's cold and refreshing. Having, having coffee and tea, for example, that are lukewarm are not good for anything. And just like the people of Jesus' day in Laodicea, that they would drink this lukewarm water that had a funky taste to it and they would spit it out of their mouth, he's saying this is a picture of the church. This is a metaphor for the church at Laodicea, that you've become a church that is useless. And of all the indictments to all the churches that we've covered in the last several weeks, the indictment of being useless, I think, has to be the most scathing indictment of them all. To say that the church has been useless. They say that they're rich. They say that they've prospered. They say that they need nothing. These are pretty big statements too, aren't they? From anybody, for anybody to say that I'm rich and I've prospered and I need nothing. I read a statistic a while back that said that 51% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. So when you think about who, who are the rich people in the world, it's you and me, right? You, you might be sitting here thinking, well, I'm not that rich and I live paycheck to paycheck, but you're, you're the rich people. We're the, we're the rich people here in America. We live in a, in a prosperous nation. And, and I'm thankful that we live where we live. I'm thankful for the prosperity uh, that God has allowed us to have uh, as a society here in America. But the indictment of the church at Laodicea is that they were putting all of the eggs in the basket of their riches. They were arrogant and they were prideful about what they were able to accomplish. They were arrogant about their riches. They slept at night trusting that their riches were going to get them through. They've prospered to the point where they would say that I need nothing. And the indictment of Jesus because of this that they're wretched, that they're pitiable, that they're poor, that they're blind, and that they're naked. And again, keep in mind that the historical context of where they're at, where Laodicea is, and the things that come out of Laodicea. To say that someone is wretched or to say that a church is wretched, again, big statement. These, these are big words. To say that a church is pitiable. I think of uh, in Corinthians, when Paul talks about, the Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection, that, that if we as Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus, like the whole, the entirety of the gospel hangs on the resurrection, right? If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, not much of what he did or said matters all that much, but if he did raise from the dead, everything that he did and everything that he says matters, and it's of the utmost importance. And the Apostle Paul says that if Christ was not raised from the dead, if he didn't conquer death, then we as Christians are the most pitiable of all people anywhere because we've bought into a sham. We, we've bought into a lie if we bank everything on the fact that Christ raised from the dead and then if it turns out that that's not true, joke's on us. And, and here John, actually Jesus through John, tells the church at Laodicea that they're wretched and that they're pitiable. Here they think that they're something, they think that they're rich, they think that they're prosperous, they think that they've accomplished all of these things, but, but at the end of the day, their church report card, F-. minus. He says that they're poor, and remember, he's speaking to people of affluence, he's speaking to people of wealth. 
He's speaking to a, a society, a culture of wealth. This is a, a contrast to the church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna thought they were poor, but Jesus had to remind them, you're, you're not, in fact, poor. You might not have much in this world, but that's not what determines if you're rich or if you're poor. Right? You have Christ, and so you're, you're not poor at all. The church at Laodicea thought, because we have all of these things, because we have all of this money and all of this wealth, that we've got it made. And Jesus tells him, no, if that's the way that you think, you are in fact poor. They may have all the goods that this world could offer. They might have the ability as a town, as a city, to reject help from the Roman government when, when it came. But Jesus is saying, spiritually, you're bankrupt. Spiritually, you don't have anything. And if that's not bad enough, you're blind. People come from all over the world to Laodicea to get their eyes fixed. And Jesus is, is using this as a metaphor to say, no, you, your eyes aren't fixed at all. In fact, you're struggling to see. You're so blind that you can't see your own condition. You can't see your own spiritual bankruptcy. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Well, I think the God of this age also works pretty hard to try and blind the minds of those maybe that do believe as well. And Jesus is reminding them, as advanced as you are medically, as technologically advanced as you are, that you're able to help restore the sight of people who struggle to see you can't see yourselves for what you are. You can't see your own church and your own condition spiritually for what it is. And again, if that's not bad enough, he tells them, not only are you wretched, not only are you pitiable, not only are you poor, not only are you blind, but also you're naked. And again, this was a, a culture that was proud of their textile industry, proud of the, the luxurious garments that came out of Laodicea. But they're so blind, they're so spiritually impoverished that they're not even aware of their own nakedness. They're not even aware of it. Sometimes I, I wonder, and we go back to Genesis, the very beginning, when, when God created Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us that they were naked and they weren't, they weren't ashamed. It wasn't a shameful thing until sin entered the world to be naked in front of one another. So they were, they were bare and they were exposed to one another. There was, no, there was no shame in it at all. And then sin enters the world. Right? They rebelled. The creation rebelled against its creator. Sin enters the world by that act. And all of a sudden they were, they were ashamed. of their. They realized, it says, that they were naked. And then they were ashamed of their nakedness and so they hid. The church at Laodicea it's a shameful thing, their spiritual nakedness, but they're completely unaware of it. They're unaware of their spiritual nakedness, of how exposed they are to the one who knows their works. And so all of this is to say that the Laodiceans needed something that they couldn't provide for themselves. It's not so much that they could and they just wouldn't provide for themselves, it's that they were, they were incapable of coming out of this spiritual impoverishment. They were incapable of clothing themselves. They were incapable of giving themselves sight. They were incapable of providing for themselves the things that they needed the most. 
all while they were thinking in their own minds that they were self-sufficient. But the reality is that their self-sufficiency, it wasn't sufficient at all. As a matter of fact, what Jesus is saying is your supposed self-sufficiency couldn't be more insufficient. The church at Laodicea had, had a lot of the things that this world has to offer. And I don't think any of us are ever going to stand up here and, and say, you know, that the things that this world has to offer in and of themselves are all bad. They're not. I'm thankful that God gives us the ability to, to work uh, and, and to build savings and to build retirement. I'm thankful for that. It's not that way in a lot of places in the world. Right? I'm thankful that we live in a place where people don't necessarily have to live paycheck to paycheck and wonder where dinner's going to come from tonight. It's not that way in a lot of places in the world. I'm, I'm thankful that we can go down to the mall and, and get whatever clothing we need, you know, whenever we need it, right? It's not that way in a lot of places in the world. I saw a meme on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, and it was, just, it was a real close-up of somebody's foot. Um, and it looked like it was in a foreign country, and it was a pair of shoes that was you know, about this big on a foot that was about this big, and it had a clothespin on the back of the shoes you know, to close the gap, and it just said something about you know, being thankful for what you have. Right? The things that, the, that God allows us to have in this world in and of themselves are not all bad things, but the church at Laodicea, they, they, they banked their life on their own sufficiency and their own ability to produce. It would seem that they, that they banked their future on their wealth. And they got to a point where they would say that we're so sufficient on our own, we're so wealthy on our own, we're so technologically advanced medically on our own that we don't need anything else. And that's not a good place to be. And so that's the indictment to them. And then in verse 18, Jesus gives them some counsel. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. So he establishes his authority of the one who's sovereign over all things, the firstborn or the one who's preeminent in all of creation. He gives them this scathing indictment. You think you have a lot, but you don't have anything at all. You think you're sufficient in everything, but you're not sufficient at all. You're just the opposite of how you view yourselves. And then he says, here's, here's what you can do about it. Here's the counsel. Here's the solution. Buy from me gold that's refined by the fire so that you may be rich. This is an analogy that the people of Laodicea would have understood because they spoke the language of money, right? They were a banking center, right? Jesus is kind of speaking to Wall Street here, if you will. It would be our equivalent today. Going to Wall Street and saying, don't put your trust in the stock market, Don't put your trust in the crypto market. Don't put your trust in the real estate market. Get get your wealth from me. I I can give you a wealth that's imperishable and incorruptible, as the Apostle Peter tells us. An inheritance that's never going to go away, that's never going to fade. He tells them to, to get white garments from him. I would suppose, like it is today, probably back in his day, that that black and white had some connotations. 
Um, I read an article just the other day about uh, uh, technology, and it had to do with uh, search engine optimization. It's like when you have a website, you can do things to your website that make you come up higher in the search results and, and depending on what people are looking for. And so they call it search engine optimization, SEO for short. And there are terms in the search engine optimization world of white hat SEO and black hat SEO. And the idea is that white hat search engine optimization is when you play by the rules and you do things in a respectable and honorable way. Black hat search engine optimization is when you break the rules uh, and you try to get a quick gain. Or think of, you know, the Westerns, you know, the Lone Ranger had a white cowboy hat, right? Um, and his, his enemies had the black hats. Jesus is telling them, forget about these black garments. As luxurious as they may be, buy from me white garments. Buy from me garments that are pure. He's speaking to them about righteousness. And the purpose of these white garments is to cover up the shame of their nakedness. So what he's saying to them is that, that as you put your eggs in the basket of this textile industry that's so predominant in your culture, he says, you're not covering up the shame of your nakedness at all. You're not fooling anybody about your spiritual condition of being bankrupt and impoverished. You're not fooling anybody. There's only one way, Jesus is saying, that, that you can really kind of cover up the shame of your nakedness. And, and as you might imagine, he's talking uh, figuratively here, not literally. There's only one way to do it and, it, and it's to find your righteousness, not from how good you are, not how awesome you are, but to find it in Christ and to buy from him white garments. And he says to get from him salve to anoint your eyes so that you may really see. And so he's speaking to, you know, this medical advancement in their culture. As great of a thing as that was, I'm sure, for the world of, of their day, that people could come from all over and get this, this salve to anoint their eyes and that their eyes could actually be better. What, what an amazing thing that is. Early in the pandemic, I had cataract surgery on both of my eyes. And I didn't realize how bad my eyes were until they were good. I went to an eye doctor one day, and he's like, I probably shouldn't let you drive home. I'm like, ah, you know, whatever. And I drove home. And then I got my eyes fixed, and then I thought, you probably shouldn't let me drive home. That we have this modern technology that, that could fix a problem that I didn't even realize was that much of a problem. And what Jesus is saying here to the Laodiceans is that you have a problem that you don't, you don't realize how big of a problem this really is. And yeah, you have the ability through medical advancements to, to physically fix somebody's eyes to make them better. It's like you have spiritual eyes that are not good. You have spiritual eyes that have stopped working altogether. And there's no medical advancement that you can, that you can uh, take advantage of to give that kind of sight to that kind of blindness. There's only one thing that can give that kind of sight to that kind of blindness, and it's the salve that comes only from Christ, from knowing who Christ is. And so in all of this, he's telling the church at Laodicea, who has become useless, who has become useless to the point where the picture is that he would spew them out of his mouth, he's saying, come to me. Come to me to find your fulfillment. Come to me to find your joy. Come to me to find your purpose. Come to me to find your satisfaction. These are all things that we often try to find in things other than Christ. These are things that we try to find sometimes in careers, sometimes in relationships, sometimes in our possessions. 
But Jesus is reminding the church at Laodicea these are things that can only really be found in one place. And if you look for them in other places, you're wretched, you're poor, you're pitiable, you're blind, and you're naked. This makes us think about Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is an indictment on humanity as well. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks about how we as humanity in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 25, that we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And that lie is that we worship and we serve the creation rather than the creator. And, and this is the entire problem of humanity. The entire problem of humanity is that we take the good gifts that God has given us, created things, and we chase after those much more than we chase after the creator. That, that, that's just like a really short definition of what sin is. That we exchange the truth for a lie. And, and we live our lives chasing after a lie. And this is what is happening at the church at Laodicea. They've chased after a lie thinking that they're chasing after the truth. So they're deceived. They've become deceived. And so Jesus gives us his authority, he gives us his indictment, he gives them their counsel. And then he tells them, here, here's what can happen from here in verse 20. Actually, verse 19, he reminds us that those whom he loves, he reproves. And so there's, there's a glimmer of hope for the church at Laodicea because he's reminding them that I'm telling you these things, not, not because I'm mean, not because I want to get you back, not because I want to smite you, I'm telling you these things because I love you. Right, that gives us some hope in this indictment, that, that Christ is indicting them um, not to condemn them, but because he loves them. And then he calls them to repentance. And repentance is just a word that means I was going this way and I'm going to change directions and go this way. And so he's calling them, like, you've got to do things different. Your way is not working. Your, your way is leading to a spiritual impoverishment that you don't even know. And so we've got to turn and do the opposite thing and go in an opposite direction. And in verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is another portion of this letter that tends to get misinterpreted. Maybe you've been in church services before where... Um, you know, at the end of a service, the lights go down, the soft music comes on, maybe a little bit of fog depending on where you're at, right? And they tell you to close your eyes and they say, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart right now. And all you have to do is open the door to let Jesus into your heart. This is not what he's saying here. This is, this is a misinterpretation of this passage of Scripture. We've got to remember who is Jesus talking to here. He's not talking to people who, are, or who don't profess to be followers of Christ. He's talking to the church. He, Jesus doesn't pause in the middle of this indictment to evangelize unbelievers who might be listening. He's talking to the church. And what he says to the church is that I'm outside of the church. And I'm knocking on the door. Somebody somebody realize that Jesus is on the outside of the church here? This is what he's saying. and that, that, Again, this is just much more of a scathing indictment that 
those who profess Christ have left Christ on the outside. And this is, this is why this indictment is so scathing, because it's a church who is, has walked away from Jesus. That passage we read in Colossians tells us that, that not only is he sovereign over all of creation, not only is everything created by him and for him, not only does he hold everything together, not only is he the, the preeminent thing over all of it, that passage in Colossians, did, did you catch this one? It also said that of all those things, he's also the head of the church. He's the one that holds the entire creation together. The entire created order does his bidding because it belongs to him. Oh, and by the way, Paul says, he's the head of the church too. So that's a big deal. And here in Revelation chapter 3, the church has pushed him to the outside. And Jesus very graciously knocks on the door like, hey, hey, I'm out here. Right? Jesus could have called down the legions of angels out of anger that the church has pushed him to the outside and would have every right to do so. But because he loves us and because he disciplines those he loves and because he's calling them to repentance, calling us to repentance, he's giving an opportunity to repent. Hey, I'm out here when I, when I belong on the inside. Remember me. In Luke chapter 12, there's a parable, Luke chapter 12, 35 to 40, and it says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door and let him in at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you don't expect. This is to say that, that we ought to be, not only should we be ready for when Christ comes, but, but that we ought to live our lives in this perpetual readiness to open the door when we see the master of the house coming down the walkway. And Jesus in Revelation 3 to the church at Laodicea is speaking to a church that is not living in a perpetual readiness. As a matter of fact, they've, they've pushed him to the outside and have forgotten about him. And as Luke writes these words, he's telling us that, that for those that live in this perpetual readiness, this state of perpetual vigilance for who Christ is and what he's doing, that there's going to be a reward to that. The reward is that Christ will serve us, that we get to recline at table with him. Now, in Bible times, when you would eat, it wouldn't be sitting around chairs like what we're used to. You would sit on the floor at a really low table and people would lean on each other. They would recline on each other because they didn't have, you know, high back chairs to sit in. And so they would recline. So eating was a very intimate thing in that point in history. Very, very, and you didn't just invite just anybody over to dinner if you were going to be, you know, leaning into their chest or resting your head on their shoulders. You didn't invite just anyone over. You invited people over that you were close to where there was an intimacy and, and what Luke is telling us is that for those that live in this state of vigilance, that there's going to be an intimacy with Christ that's to come. But for the ones that, that don't, that they're not going to get 
that intimacy. And so Jesus is telling us that he's standing at the door knocking to the one who conquers, he says, gets to sit with me on my throne just like I get to sit with my father on my throne. It's, again, this picture of intimacy that we get to know and be with Christ in an intimate sort of way. And then he says, if you have an ear, let him hear. And everybody has ears, right? So this is, he's saying, everybody, pay attention to this. This is for everybody. This is for everyone. And what's intimated here is that if you don't hear this, if you don't heed this call to repentance, it's not going to end well. If you don't heed this call to repentance, you're going to continue to live in a state of wretchedness, in pitiableness, in poverty, in nakedness, in shame. You're going to continue to live in those things, and you're not even going to know it. And this, you know, we might say, in a sense, ignorance is bliss, right? You don't know what you don't know. But, but there's going to come a day where that ignorance is no longer bliss. And so what he's saying is that as I'm standing here at the door knocking, here, here's your opportunity to repent. Here's your opportunity to bring Christ back into the church. And, and you know, we, we work really hard here at the door to be a Christ-centered church. We're, we're imperfect people, um, and we act imperfectly. But, but we work really hard to make sure that Christ is at the center of what we do. We, make, we work really hard to make sure that, that his word is at the center of what we do because we don't want this kind of an indictment coming for our church saying we've pushed Jesus to the outside. We don't want that at all. We don't want that collectively for our church. We don't want that for, for you as individuals. We don't want any individual to push Jesus outside of their lives. And so this serves today for us as a call to recognize areas in our lives where maybe we've pushed Jesus aside. And maybe it's even in pursuit of, of noble things, right? It's a noble thing to, to work a good career and, and have a healthy retirement. Noble thing. Just one example of, of, of many. There was a missionary named Jim Elliott, some of you might be familiar with. Jim Elliott has a pretty incredible story if you want to look it up. But one of the things that he's famous for saying is this. Jim Elliott says that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. This is Christ's message to the church at Laodicea. You're chasing after all of these things that in the end you can't keep. Right? Your, your money's going to burn. Your medical advancements are going to burn. Your text, it's all going to go away. Yet we live these lives in hard pursuit, hard and fast pursuit of these things. And Christ is reminding us to chase after the thing that, that once we grasp it, we can never lose. Right? Once we come to Christ, once Christ has his grip on us, that, that grip does not let loose. And we're foolish if we think that we can chase after these other things to find what we can only find in Christ. And so I would ask you to consider today, what, what are the things that you might be chasing in your life that ultimately you can't keep? Because there are things. There are things in my life I'm chasing after that I can't keep. And if there are things in my life, there's, I know there's things in yours too. What are you chasing after that you can't keep? And in this call to repentance, it really is a call to chase the things that we can't lose. And so let me challenge us to think about that for our own lives, to stop chasing the things that we can't keep in order to chase the things that we can never lose. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you discipline those that you love. Um, It would be my prayer today for all of us, God, that we would look at your um, disciplining word uh, as a good thing, as a needed thing in our lives, and that we would uh, heed the call to repentance, that we would heed the call uh, to start chasing after the things that matter, that you would open up our eyes, that you would reveal to us um, our poverty, that you would reveal to us our blindness, that you would reveal to us our nakedness, our wretchedness, um, and that those things wouldn't necessarily condemn us because we know that's not your way, um, but that as those things are revealed to us, that it would cause us to run harder and faster uh, in the direction of you, that we would chase the one thing that once we grasp hold of that we can never lose, and that's knowing you. And so, Father, help us to uh, be people, help us to be a church that, that has Christ at the center of what we do and not on the outside. And we ask it in your name. Amen.